Hey, let me, let me, it's good to, good to see a lot of young people in that, up singing today in the choir. God bless all of you uh, for doing that. Well, thank you for your prayers and for many expressions of care for Mindy and I. Most of you know we went through, a, went through the COVID. I think that's how it's being referred to, COVID, and, uh, and it's no fun. So, uh, but I appreciate your prayers, and we're, we're, we're almost back to normal, whatever normal is. I'm not sure there is any kind of normal when you're trying to live for the Lord, right? So uh, he's, it seems like there's always something stretching you. And uh, so, but uh, this morning I want to resume this series of life in the Spirit. And uh, for most of the summer, I've been going through looking at the person and the work, presence of the Holy Spirit. And invite you this morning to open your Bible with you. I hope that you brought it each Sunday um, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'll read and speak on the subject of spiritual gifts. It's a, it is a, uh, unfortunately, a controversial subject, that of spiritual gifts. It's controversial in many churches because they disagree over uh, which gifts are the most important ones. Sometimes they disagree about, are all of the gifts of the Spirit still operational? Are the gifts of prophecy and miracles and healings and tongues and interpretation of tongues, are those gifts still operational or have they ceased? And, and then they, there's disagreement over personal experience. Sometimes God's people will place experience and their own personal experiences over the clear teaching of Scripture and so all of those create some controversy to the point that um, what was intended by God uh, to unite the church and to make it more effective and stronger for ministry, instead this issue of spiritual gifts has resulted in the very opposite. Sometimes entire congregations under the influence of the enemy have disagreed so strongly that it's resulted in them separating and splitting. In fact, entire de Protestant denominations have been born out of a disagreement from Scripture over that of spiritual gifts. And so, in preparation, uh, as we begin to read through this text and study and pray, uh, I felt like the Lord impressed upon me to approach the message in this, again, the subject of spiritual gifts with one aim, really one aim to answer one question. How might this subject and this message on gifts of the Spirit be used by God in a practical way to make us, all of us, stronger and more focused and passionate about making disciples? So what is the relationship between spiritual gifts and making disciples? How might the gifts of the Spirit contribute to us becoming more and more of a disciple-making church, walking in the Spirit, using the gifts of the Spirit? where everyone is growing stronger in their faith, fulfilling the Great Commission, and doing all of it for the glory of God. And if you remember, in addition to all that the Spirit does, all that He is, who He is, and all that He does, and it's a lot, we've been going through all of that from the Scriptures, but everything He does has one single overarching purpose— so when you think about the person and the work and the role of the Holy Spirit in your life and in the church, it all has, he has one overarching purpose for everything that he does, and that is to make much of Jesus. 
to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember Jesus in John 16 said to his team of disciples, I'm going to leave you. I'm going back to my Father, to the one who sent me. But my leaving is to your advantage because when I am gone, my replacement is going to come, this paraclete, this comforter, the Spirit. And when he comes, he will help you and he will do lots of things for you. And everything he does, John 16, 14 says, will be for the purpose to bring glory to me, to glorify the Son, which means the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and everything that he does and all that he gives is never for the purpose of glorifying us. In fact, he's going to work in our lives where we are always decreasing and he's increasing, which is contrary to our flesh because our flesh will want to increase and for everyone and everything else to decrease so it's always the opposite so let's see what the bible says about spiritual gifts and how the gifts of the spirit are used to exalt jesus to make us stronger at reaching and making disciples of all people and so before we read this text let me give you a little background here to first corinthians chapter 12 the corinthian congregation had sent the Apostle Paul a letter. And in the letter, they list their pro some problems, some problematic issues that, was, that were confronting them as a church. And in this letter, they're asking the Apostle Paul for clarification regarding these issues, and they're seeking advice. And so Paul, after receiving this letter, he writes a letter back in response to their letter and he addresses each issue providing pastoral counsel. And he begins the letter, before he gets into any of the specific issues, and I think this is very strategic in the book of 1 Corinthians, in this letter. He begins the, the letter, lays the, found, uh, the foundation, the groundwork, and he takes them right back to the gospel, back to the gospel, because the gospel is the lens from which you and I are to approach life. We approach living through the gospel. We preach it to ourselves and apply it to every circumstance. Jesus established the Lord's Supper, which we're going to take in a few minutes at the end of the message. And the purpose of taking the Lord's Supper is for us to remember, to remember. As often as you do this, remember me. Remember the gospel because it's the lens by which you and I live life as followers of Christ. And so with that in mind, read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'm just going to read through the first 11 verses and then make a few references to some of the remaining verses. But 1 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 1. Now concerning spiritual, and if you notice, you'll notice in your Bibles, you see the word gifts after that, so spiritual gifts? Most of your Bibles will have the word gifts italicized because it's not in the original text. It's been added, and I'll explain that in just a moment. Now concerning what it should read is literally, now concerning spiritual Concerning spiritual, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant or uninformed. You know that you were, in the past, Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led, dumb or mute idols. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. 
and there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of everyone, for all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Let's pray. God, we pause to give you thanks for your word, grateful that you've revealed to us both through the scriptures and through your son, asking for your spirit to correct our thinking regarding ourselves, to clarify our understanding of your gifts, calling us to use those gifts that you've given and let it all be done for you to be glorified and exalted, for us to be edified and strengthened, and for others to be saved, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, back to the beginning of the text. One of the issues confronting the Corinthian church was confusion about what does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to be a spiritual person? Much of the confusion surrounded this misunderstanding and abuse of spiritual gifts. Thus, chapters 12, 13, and 14, where he addresses that. And by the way, he sandwiches between gifts and service, he sandwiches that chapter on love. Because there was confusion about the gifts of the Spirit. And so, from the text, the foundation for everything that he's going to say about gifts and service is established in the first three verses. The very beginning, it makes it clear from verse 1 that God wants all of us to have clarity regarding being spiritual or spiritual living. In other words, what does it mean to be a strong Christian man? What does it mean to be a strong Christian woman? How might you answer that question if someone were to ask you, if they asked you, who are the Who are the real spiritual people in Hillcrest Baptist Church? Who are the spiritual ones in your church family? If someone asked you that question, how would you answer? Who are the spiritual ones? The spiritual people in your church? Well, I think we need to be careful in how we might answer that. There was in a previous church, there was an elderly Christian woman a saint who's gone on to glory now, and she was perhaps one of the most godly spiritual members of the entire church family. She was never on the platform. I never knew her to be up front of the congregation for anything. She never taught a Sunday school class. I don't think that she was ever invited to speak anywhere, but she was always present. She was always kind. She was always smiling, very gracious. She used to drop me notes under my office door, little prayer notes. Every week she would spend hours in the church prayer room. All the prayer requests were filtered into the prayer room, and then people came in 
every day of the week, different hours of the day, appointments in the prayer room, and she spent hours in that prayer room. She'd pray through the church directory. She would pray through all of those prayer requests. There was an inbox, and so people would come in and take the inbox prayer request, pray over it, put it in the outbox, and those prayer requests were just filtered through constantly throughout the week. People prayed. She would write people prayer grams. There was little envelopes and little notes there, and if, as the Holy Spirit would put someone in her mind, she would write prayer grams, and then all those prayer grams were put in the church office, and they were sent out, and there was literally... Dozens of those went out every week from the church, people sending other people prayer grams. She was an African-American woman, a member of the church. She had experienced great adversity in her life, the mother of nine children. She grew up in a poor section of Louisville, ran a restaurant downtown. She was the cook. She was the janitor and maintained and raised nine kids and working full-time outside the home. And she was a prayer warrior. She loved to worship. She loved to listen to Kirk Franklin, uh, smile and lovely day. And when Mrs. Patterson died, it was a huge loss for our church family. And personally, I felt a vacuum because I knew that that lady was spending time regularly praying for me and praying for my family. She sat in the back of the church. She wasn't known by everyone, never on the platform, never singing, never speaking up front, never headed up a team, never led a committee that I knew, but she was one of the most spiritual people I've ever met in my life, very humble, filled with God's spirit. But she's not who many of us would think of, that type of person when we think about who are the spiritual ones in our church. Paul is writing in verse 1 to the congregation, and he says now about or concerning the spiritual, the spiritual ones. And again, gifts that has been added later by translators because he goes down in the context, the subject of spiritual gifts. But he's clarifying to begin with, what does it mean to be spiritual? That word spiritual comes from a Greek pneumatikos, which refers to things or to people or to matters concerning spiritual things, spiritual matters, spiritual people. The issue, the problem that the Corinthian church was having was there was confusion about who the spiritual people were in the church, the most spiritual and who this, what it meant to be spiritual. And so he's writing to clarify this. And so much of the confusion stemmed from their background, which he refers to verse 2. He talks about before they came to Christ, they were led by dumb, mute idols. And much of their pre-Christian background and view and beliefs had carried over into the congregation. And they believed that those who were spiritual in the church were those who had certain gifts. The spiritual people were those who had spectacular gifts, outward gifts, gifts of prophecy and miracles and healings and tongues. They were the spiritual ones. They were esteemed, those gifts, to be more valuable than other gifts. And those people who demonstrated those kind of things were considered to be more valuable than others. And so there was confusion in the church about this. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that goes on in our churches today? 
and Christian communities and denominations and evangelical circles? Do you think there are any examples or times or instances where we begin to raise up certain people, where we exalt certain people and praise certain people who have certain gifts? I think we do. And do you think we wrongly create Christian celebrities, Christian superstars, and we worship them and exalt them, singers, authors, preachers? Do you think it ever happens in a local church? Sure it does. And I can tell you this. We need to be reminded that all of us are sinners. All of us are saved by the grace of God. I am no superstar. You, I am no celebrity, and neither you are you. There is only one superstar. There's only one superstar. Amen? Only one, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And may he be the one who is always exalted. Listen, I've told people before, you put me on a pedestal and exalt me, there's only one place to go, and that's down. I don't want to be exalted. I don't want to be, neither do you. It's, it's only Jesus, only one superstar. So the mark, the evidence of being a real spiritual person is not the gifts that we possess. It's not if we're up front or who's on the platform or who's the most visible. In fact, I always think if somebody wants to be visible, if somebody wants attention drawn to them, they're not in the spirit at all. If there's any motive, if there's any attitude in us as we serve to get attention, to have accolades, to draw attention to ourselves, we're really disqualified from God working through us. Sure, you may be up front. Sure, you may be seen, but it's always to draw attention to Christ. I don't want to do anything that somehow exalts myself, nor do you. The mark is, are they walking in the Spirit? Are they in tune with the Holy Spirit? And is the Holy Spirit working in them, producing the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy, and peace and patience? All of the fruit listed in Galatians 5, 22 and 3. Let's redefine who the spiritual ones are. They're not those who get attention necessarily. They're not the ones who have certain kinds of gifts. Those gifts don't make people spiritual. In fact, you can have tremendous spiritual gifts and serve and be known and be a celebrity, but be a superficial scoundrel. And we see examples of that all the time. People that are on the Christian circuit, they're superstars, only to find out later there's all kinds of issues, unspiritual issues going on in their lives. Instead, those who are the spiritual ones are those who have good character, walking in the spirit versus the flesh, living under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I want you to be informed. I want you to have clarity to those who are living in the spirit, to those who are spiritual. I don't want you to be uninformed. And that word uninformed is from a Greek word, agneo. Does that sound like any English word you know? Agneo sounds like kind of agnostic. Someone who is lacking clarity about God. And so he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you not to know either because you don't have the right information or the word can also literally convey those who are not really interested in having and knowing the truth. Paul's saying you need to know this, to understand this, to, to care. And the reason that you should care about this is because it's of a vital importance to the health of your church. And so regarding what Paul is saying about being spiritual and gifts of the Spirit, 
Every one of us could be placed into one of three categories regarding this. Either one is we already know this. We know it already. Second, we don't know it, but we're interested in learning it. Or there could be a category where some of us don't know it and we really don't care about it. And listen, let me say this to you. I'm going to close and say something about a couple of this and kind of apply it all to the church. You want to know why there's mediocre churches, kind of lifeless plateaued, lifeless, lack of energy, lack of fruitfulness in churches is because many of them are filled with mediocre, lifeless Christians. And they all want to be part of a great church, but they're not bringing much to the table. Paul is correcting this church, saying you need the truth, no to the truth regarding what it means to be spiritual and spiritual gifts. So let me close by just kind of going through and saying some things about spiritual gifts. Four things. What are spiritual gifts? Second, who gives the gifts? Third, who are they given to and why are they given to us? Who gives them? What are they for? What are they? What are they given for and who are they given to? So let me go through these kind of very quickly and then I'll tie it all together. So what are spiritual gifts? If we need to know this, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, uninformed. What are spiritual gifts? And some of them have... They've been defined as spiritual enablements or spiritual endowments. The late Bible commentator Ray Stedman said, and this is the best definition I've ever heard on spiritual gifts. He says three things kind of help us to define and clarify what they are. Spiritual gifts, number one, are a capacity for service. And he's writing to Christians. They're a capacity, a capacity that God gives us to serve Second, they're given to every Christian. And third, they are gifts that they did not possess before they were a Christian. So they are capacities for service given to every Christian that they did not possess before they became a Christian. If you look in verses 4, 5, and 6 of the text, he says there's diversities of gifts. You see that? Which means there's lots of spiritual gifts. Verse 5 there's lots of different ministries. And verse 6, lots of different activities. Paul is describing the life of the church, activities, ministries, all fueled by the same spirit, all of it working through or by the giftedness of the members. I've always believed, and I still believe this, will always believe this, it's a conviction that I have about the church that God provides his church with all the gifts the church needs to do everything he calls the church to do. Let me say it again. God provides his church with all the gifts, all the giftedness that church needs to do everything that God calls that church to do. And practically what that means is if there is a ministry of the church that's kind of floundering, just kind of floundering, it's stagnant, it's kind of lifeless, it's either because of one of two reasons, or it could be a third one, but it's related to the two. It's either because we're doing something we shouldn't be doing, which I think churches can, can do. We can do things that are good things, but not necessarily the focused things that God wants us to do. And so if it's floundering, it's either because we're doing something we shouldn't be doing, or second, there are members who have gifts who are not stepping up to serve in that area. One of two. And so 
let me, if you want to write these down, and I don't have time to go through these, but if you want to know in the Bible where all of the sections about spiritual gifts are, well, they're here listed in 1 Corinthians 12. He lists some of the spiritual gifts, and then you'll find them also in Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. I'd advise you to, and that's why he begins that section in verses 1 and 2, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. He prefaces, and then he begins to talk about spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, and then also in Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. And then there's a little reference to, in Ephesians 4, 11, to some gifts. Now, let me say about these spiritual gifts, these capacities that God gives us to start serving him when we're saved, gifts that we didn't possess before we became a Christian. Let me just make a note and address the subject of natural talents and abilities. And what's the relationship between natural talents and abilities and spiritual gifts? Uh, my friend who was here a few weeks ago uh, and shared with us their testimony. He was a musician, great guitar player, great performer, and he did all of that before he came to Christ. And so he was, he was given, he was born with a gift for music and a natural ability to, to do that. And so those gifts, those natural talents and abilities are still gifts given to us from God, but they're not the same as spiritual gifts. They're not the same. Now, they can be used and work together. And let me give you some examples of that. My wife uh, has an amazing ear for music, great rhythm, ability to play. Musical ability is not listed in the Bible as a spiritual gift. It's not listed as a spiritual gift but it is a natural talent. It is an ability. And so the gift of music mixed, uh, a natural talent ability that you're born with to, for music might be mixed with a gift of service or the gift of helps or the gift of mercy or even the gift of teaching where you use that natural talent and ability in conjunction with the spiritual gifting. So they, they can work together. That's my point. Let me give you a couple of other examples. Some people in this church who might cook meals for other people or distribute clothing or distribute food. You don't see cooking in the Bible as a spiritual gift. You don't see distribution of food as a spiritual gift. But yet those passions, those abilities can be used as gifts of mercy or gifts of service. And I'd like to set a time on here and the next, and I'll, I'll make you aware of this, and I don't really care what well, I'd like for a lot of people, but there might be 30 people here or more than that, but I'd like to just spend a few weeks on Sunday nights and just go and teach about each one of these spiritual gifts just for maybe four weeks or so. And so I'll make you aware of that. I just feel like the Lord's put that on my heart for the purpose, the aim of helping all of us to discover what our gifts are and how God might more, you better use us in the body of Christ. So those are spiritual gifts. Second, who are they from? Well, the Bible says these gifts come from God. They're given by God through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Look, verse 11 of our text. Verse 11 says, God gives these spiritual gifts to each of us as he wills, which means we don't vote on it. I don't determine the spiritual gifts that God gives me, nor do you. There's people who think, well, I wish I had that gift that Don has, or I wish I had that gift that Teresa has, and we don't, we don't vote on those, on those gifts. In fact, God knows us, and when we get saved, and he indwells us through the Holy Spirit and gives us a gift or spiritual gifts, God gives to us 
what he knows we need, and I think he also is aware of what the church needs, and so he gifts us for the body of Christ. Third, who are they given to? Well, they're given to us as Christians. And again, so when you're saved, the Holy Spirit indwells you, God gives you a spiritual gift, or maybe a, a, gift, a gift set of mi- gifts kind of mixed together. I would also point out later in this text, in verses 29 and 30, the Bible is very clear that not all Christians possess the same gifts. Look at, look at verse 29 and 30 of the text. He kind of raises the question. He says, are all in the church apostles? No. Do all, are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? Does everybody in the church have the gift of teaching? No. Are all in the church, do they all work miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healings? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret tongues? No. So the point is, he's, he's trying to make the point, not everyone has all of these gifts. And so if you hear certain people say that every Christian should have these certain kinds of gifts as evidence of being spiritual, you know, you don't find that in the Bible. You don't find it in Scripture. God gives to us as Christians the gift or the gift mix that he knows that we need and that the church needs. And then fourth, what are they for? Why does God give us gifts? Well, they're always for serving others. They're always for serving others. They're always to build up somebody else. God gives you and gives you a certain gift to edify to someone, to encourage them, to build them up, to make them stronger in their faith. And then as you do that, then then in turn, you are blessed. Someone said the gifts of the Spirit are tools given by God, not toys to be played with. And so beginning in verse 12 of that text, and didn't have time to read all of this, but he compares the human physical body to the church body. And in the human body, there are lots of different parts. And just kind of look at, your, look at yourself for a moment. Physically, many parts Lots of different physical parts of the body, and all the parts are necessary, and they all work together for the overall effectiveness and health of your body. What happens to your body physically when certain parts don't function? See, someone who has a stroke, may have a stroke on one side of the brain and affects the other side of the brain, and there might be one entire side of the body that doesn't function well, those physical parts. What happens when certain parts of the body are weakened or injured or amputated? Well, it puts a lot more pressure on the rest of the body, doesn't it? I've shared this with you, and I, I just, it was just such a, a big experience for me to watch my dad lose both of his legs through amputation. And so here he was, late 78, 78 years old, loses one leg, and then 80 years old, loses the other leg. And I watched him go through that process, and he still lived. Lost his legs, but he still lived. But the quality of his life was dramatically diminished. There were certain things he could no longer do, and all that still needed to be done. And he was very frustrated because he couldn't do the things that he used to do, couldn't ride a lawnmower, couldn't work outside, couldn't work in his garden, couldn't do things in the home, couldn't even care and bathe and take care of himself without some help. And it placed tremendous strain on my stepmom, his wife. And I watched that. And think about, that's what happens in the church body. 
That's what happens in the church body. When you, as a Christian, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, say, and God has given you spiritual gifts, and you say, for whatever reason, I'm not going to serve. I'm not interested in serving. I've got other interests, other things that are more important to me. And you refuse to serve in the body of Christ. You strain the rest of the body. And put work on everyone else. And then and sometimes are the very first ones to criticize the church for not being all that she should be and doing all that she should be doing. I don't know about that old church. Mediocre churches are mediocre because they're full of mediocre Christians who refuse to use the gifts that God has given them to build up and serve and edify others and then wonder why the church is not strong and flourishing and doing all that she should be doing. And perhaps the most important question in this entire text comes back personally to each one of us. Are you using the gifts that God has given you to make Hillcrest Baptist Church strong? Are you using the gifts that God has given you to edify, to build up and bless other people in the church? And that's what they're always for. You might be sitting there this morning and well, I don't, I don't really know what my spiritual gifts are. Let me give you four simple things to do to help you get on the right path. Number one, just read your Bible and pray. That'd be the first one. Just read about spiritual gifts and pray and ask God to show you how he's gifted you and equipped you to, to minister and bless and build up and serve other people. Second, get connected with other believers and ask them. Ask them. Go up to somebody and say, hey, you know what? what do you, you, you know me pretty well. What, what could you envision me doing in Hillcrest Baptist Church? How do you think God could use me here in my Sunday school class or in the church body? Just ask somebody to kind of help Share with you what they see in your life. Third, and last, or get connected, ask others to help you, and then just jump in. You find out there's a need somewhere, just jump in and start serving, and you'll know pretty well whether it's a good fit for you or not early on. Let me close. Some of you might be familiar with the story of Rudy Ruttinger. Any of you know the story of Rudy Ruttinger? Well, I'm going to tell you the story of Rudy Ruttinger in closing. He grew up in Joliet, Illinois, true story, one of 14 children. He grew up to, in, a, in a devout Catholic family, and his dad, Mr. Ruttinger, was a passionate fan of the University of Notre Dame, and especially of Notre Dame football. And he grew up on Saturdays, as the family would gather around the the radio, and they would listen to Notre Dame football games, and no one was allowed to say a word during those Notre Dame football games. That was sacred time. Nobody in the family had ever visited the campus. It wasn't that far away. No one had ever gone to a Notre Dame football game, but they were passionate Roman Catholics who were passionate about Notre Dame and Notre Dame football. And Rudy, one of 14 kids, grew up in school. He had a learning disability, and he did very poorly in academics. He wasn't a good student, barely got through. But he did play on the high school football team. And when he graduated, his senior, he was 5'10", and he says that was stretching it, and 160 pounds. He wasn't very fast. He wasn't very strong. He, was, he just wasn't one of those guys that was naturally gifted by God to be a football player, but he played football.
just average. And upon graduation, because of his grades and he was just average, he along with everyone else in his family resigned themselves to the reality that after high school, he would go to work in the steel mill like everyone else. But Rudy had a dream that he would one day go to Notre Dame and play football. He didn't possess the grades to get into Notre Dame, nor did he have the talent to play football. But despite all the doubters and all the ridicule, he possessed a fierce determination to follow his dreams. And so he left home and he was rejected, of course, didn't get into the school, but he applied to a local JUCO college named, called Holy Cross and he got accepted in that junior college and for the next two years, he worked to pay for his way, to get through part-time jobs, and he studied and got tutors and helped, and he somehow got through that junior college and raised his GPA to a B average and continued to apply to the University of Notre Dame and was rejected over and over and over. It wasn't good enough, but finally, at the very end, he was accepted. And so he got into the University of Notre Dame. And perhaps the second one was even a bigger dream than the first one. He was going to play on the University of Notre Dame football team. Five foot ten, 160, slow, couldn't run. And so he goes to the head coach and he shares his dream and he goes to the walk-ons, the tryouts, and here he is. And, and he's so passionate, so determined to play on that football team that while he didn't have the talent, there was one coach who took an interest in him and said, I'm going to give you a shot. Will you... Will you play this hard? Will you serve and give this much for the next two years? And if, you, if you'll do, I'll keep you on the practice squad. And so he played on the practice squad for the next two years, beat up, bloodied, true story, all kinds of injuries, just, 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 just mashed during those meat squads. That's what they were called, that practice. It was called a meat squad. It was just meat at the... First team, the All-Americans were just beat up on, but he stayed with it. And on the last game of the season of his senior year, he asked the coach if he could dress for the final game, and his teammates were so moved by two years of his service and of his giving and of his desire, they petitioned the coach, and the coach let Rudy dress for the final game. And with all of his family present, he finally went to the Notre Dame Stadium, went to the campus, and his entire family watched Rudy walk, run out onto the field, and he got into the game on the last two plays. Do you, you remember the story? Watch this, watch this clip. say, uh, let me say this, the only football player in the history of Notre Dame to ever be carried off the field by his teammates. True story, that's a fact. He possessed a dream, he was passionate, 
He wanted to belong to something bigger than himself, to be part of a team, and the end result was it changed his life. He succeeded and inspired everyone around him. And you might not know that Rudy Rudger is still alive and travels around the country today as a motivational speaker sharing his story with young people. So why share that story? What does that have to do with spiritual gifts? Well, let me close. After serving as your pastor for about a year and a half now, I've gotten to know the lay of the land here somewhat, still learning. And there's some things that I have discovered about Hillcrest Baptist Church that are pretty amazing, pretty excellent. And then there's some other areas I've discovered that I think are some challenges for us. And someone recently asked me, what, what do you think is the potential of Hillcrest Baptist Church? What do you think the potential is? Well, that was a good question, and I've thought deeply about it for many weeks. And I feel like God gave me the answer. You want to hear it? What I think the potential for Hillcrest Baptist Church is as we think about the future? I'd say the potential is limitless. Ephesians 3.21 says, Our God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond anything that we could ever ask him. And further, he's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond anything we could even imagine to ask him. But I think this is the key. It'll only happen if and when all the members of Hillcrest Baptist Church determine to belong to a team and get connected and become passionate about the gospel, passionate about the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom and his interests and connect and to begin serving, to begin contributing. See, you might be the Rudy here. Even a, a, in a church this size, I still believe one person in a church this size can have a tremendous impact, can make a tremendous difference. How are you using the gift or the gifts that God has given you to really make a difference in the life of this church. And let me ask you, are you passionate about that? Are you passionate today about Christ and the gospel and his kingdom interests? I'm going to preach a funeral in the morning of a man that I love dearly. He can drive five hours today. Appreciate your prayers. I'm going to travel five hours. And he's a man who lived his life and gave his all for the kingdom. And he made a difference. He made a difference. I'm going to ask that you bow and pray with me. And as Don comes and as we, the deacons come, I'm going to ask them to come to the Lord's table. And as a way to encourage you and as you think about your service and how God wants to use you, I want you and all of us together to think about Christ and his service for us and what he did for us on the cross. And it's the gospel that compels us. It's that gospel, what Christ did for us that is to move and compel us to serve, to serve him because of his love that he laid down, his life, 
And all that he did for us is what compels us. It's the gospel what drives us to serve. And so as the invitation is, begins to play, I ask that you pray with me for a few moments, and then as you're ready, that you would come to the Lord's table and take, receive the bread and receive the cup. And after all have been served, we'll take it together as a symbol, a sign of our unity in Christ Jesus. And so you pray and then come as you're ready to take the bread and the cup.